and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And this week we're continuing our series on yesterday's gossip. Uh, try to lighten some of the darkness in these trying times. How are you doing, Claire? I am hanging in there. Good. I, I think I'm hanging in there too. Um, I, I think that's. I think we're all just hanging in there, doing our best. Um, I will say I, I am reading more gossip these days. <laughs> oh, there you go. See, silver silver linings all around. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. It depends on depends on how much you like gossip. Yeah, I feel like it's like I'm trying to read more, and there's less to be said because nobody's doing anything. I'm just actively at this point trying to avoid the news. So anything. Anything entertaining is good. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but we've just stopped watching the news in the morning. We used to watch the Today Show every morning because, you know, you turn it on, you get some fluff. Then there's like a 20-minute segment of like news, then a little fluff. Then I would take a shower and go to work. And now we've just, excuse me, been completely ignoring that and watching this show called Northwood's Law, which... Is, Sounds riveting. Yes, it takes place in the woods of New Hampshire and Maine, and it's all about like game wardens and um, the, <laughs> you know, like capers that they have to investigate. So, you know, that's been interesting. And then my husband tells me there's 17 seasons to get through, so we're good for a while. You're set for entertainment. Yeah, I have to say it's become a thing though. We turn on the TV in the morning, and it's like, what's happening today? And it's like that man illegally shot a deer and it's like there was a whole episode about a man who lived in Canada and shot a moose in Maine and it was just like you know it's almost like a peasant shooting deer on the king's hunting grounds yes yes I don't know it's just I don't have to pay attention I can wake up drink my coffee I can be mildly entertained if I have to ignore it completely I can occasionally the dog gets set off by a bear but you know anyway that's the highlight of my day these days the very beginning yeah yeah <laughs> all right well I think it's good that we've reignited our series at this time because I was thinking we would do like one gossip catch-up and that would probably cover it for the near future because you know we talked about how Prince Charles had coronavirus how he has recovered by the he way he has recovered yes but the Sussexes are like the gift that keep on giving they really are so I want to talk about that, but I just wanted to quickly address um, the fact that Prince Charles has recovered from the coronavirus, and the Queen gave, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a frog in my throat, the Queen gave an address to the nation, which was only like the fourth time she's done an official address in her entire reign. Did you find that surprising? I found that a bit surprising. Yeah, because they don't count the Christmas ah. ones, so you kind of like think, oh, she does it all the time, but... Yeah, it's the one when she was a teenager and she made that promise that she would, or she was 21, whatever that was, she promised she would give her whole life to the kingdom. I think she did one um, for Diana's death, and there was one other time, and I can't remember what it is, and then this. So this was a pretty big deal. Do you know, I listened to a clip of her speech the other day, and I got a little choked up. Well, somebody said something where it was just really nice to hear someone say it who's got some longevity and some, like, oomph behind them. So it was like, it kind of felt something. It wasn't like Trump up there. 
thing. Like, no, but that's what I, I mean. Like, I got a little choked up because, you know, at the end she was like, we'll see our families again. We'll see our friends again. We'll, we'll be together again. And I was like, and this is a woman who gave her first address during World War II. And like, you know, she's seen everything. And I was like, okay, like I, I feel better for a moment. Yeah, she's seen some bad times. So you're kind of like, all right, Liz, we'll get through it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, people were talking about it on my Zoom call at work. Everybody was like, she did so good. And as far as I know, these are not like avid royal watchers. So definitely made an impact. Um, but yes, let's get to Harry and Meghan because as you say, it is the gift that keeps on giving. So the big news this week was that they would, well, they didn't really announce it. They were forced to confirm the name of their new charitable endeavor which we still aren't sure whether it's a nonprofit or a foundation or a charity and yes those are distinctly different entities um so we're still waiting on that but do you want to yeah I which exactly... one is the one where you just like milk yourself for a ton of money which one is that which one of those options would be the one where you just like? I think milk it's the foundation because a, like a, a foundation you're only required to donate five percent. Okay. To charity, yeah. Um, but it all depends on the overhead. Like even a nonprofit can have really severe overhead, and then whatever's left goes to charity. So. Mm. Um, but nonprofits more like they working they're working toward a charitable cause. Um, and it, there's like a lot of distinctions, and it definitely varies by country and in the u.s as you know you can call yourself a nonprofit entity under a very broad range of actual activity so i don't think it's a coincidence that they've i'm not i don't want to like imply that they're money grubbing or anything like that but i don't think it's a coincidence that they're forming their charitable entity in the united states Mm mm-mm um, but anyway, they've announced the name is... Now, I am not exactly sure how to pronounce this. I think it's Archwell. Archwell. Okay. So that's the name of the new entity. Um, and it's interesting because they came out with this confirmation and they said, you know, there's this Greek word spelled A-A-R-C-H-E, which I believe is pronounced R-K. Oh, it's Archewell? I Well, that's how the Well, that Greek, would make sense, like, hold, archetype. Hold on. I think the Greek word is is pronounced arche, I believe, mm. something like that. And they said, you know, it's this Greek word. It means, like, source of action, and we, we kind of took it to heart, and we used it to inspire our son's name. But here's the thing is their son's name is Archie. So, right. and if you look at the way it's going to be pronounced in the English language, people aren't going to look at that and say Archwell. They're going to say Archwell. So I think it is Archwell. Also, does that mean that's secretly his real name? Well, no, but the thing is, is like... Well, because do, do you remember when, when he was born, everybody was like, oh, Archie. Right. Like, that's a nickname. And like, Archie Harrison, like, I wonder if like, that maybe, I mean, I they'd have a hard time like, no, his, his real name, name is. They'd have to show his yeah. his birth certificate. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I I thought that was kind of like. I just thought it was a little a little bit of a miss to if you're gonna draw inspiration from word, that's fantastic. But it's if it's not supposed to be pronounced that way, it's gonna be mispronounced from the get go. Or if you are intentionally mispronouncing it, then it kind of loses some of its 
luster, I guess, from the word that you're, I don't know. I, it was sort of, to me, it was kind of like, meh, this, this doesn't really resonate. Well, um, here's my question for you is like, do you believe this? I don't know. Like, I kind of found myself like thinking, like, I just assumed like, okay, so they can't use Sussex Royals. So they just decided to name this foundation after their son. And then they came out and were like, oh, this was the inspiration for his name in the first place. And I was, I just kind of found myself going like, is it? Like, yeah, I, I don't you know. know. Because the thing is, like, when, when Archie was born, they said that he was named to honor one of Harry's mentors, whose nickname is Archie, which made a hell of a lot more sense to me than naming him after a Greek word that you're not even pronouncing the same. I, I don't know. It might be kind of a reach. It might be a little bit of a personal retcon. Um... I just, I found the name to sound, it's, it sounds like a food brand to me. It does, like Honeywell. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was a little underwhelmed. Like Archwell potato snacks. Yeah, and it was funny because I, I mentioned to you that a friend of mine had brought this up unprompted, and she was like, what is that name? And then she said, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of like off Harry and Meghan now. I find them so much less interesting now that they're not royal and they're just like rant like they're normal people trying to make something of themselves she was like I find that less interesting and I thought that that was an interesting comment for someone to make because we've talked about this is can they build on the interest in them without the mystique and the prestige and the thousand year history of the royal family behind them Maybe they can. I, I'm not trying to put them down, and I'm not saying I have an answer. I just I thought it was really interesting that someone I know brought that up to me. Also, I think that's a really fascinating thing to say because it also points to this, you know, the false front that is the royal, like, mystique, right? Mm -hmm. Like, these are ostensibly the same people, mm -hmm. right? It's Harry and Meghan. They just no longer... They, Harry is even still a prince, but like they, they are just no longer publicly like allowed to comport and call themselves royal. And, and if you're not Sussex royal, you're arch royal. Right, and it takes away like not their reason for being, but like their reason for interest, I guess. I guess I was just taken aback by the like pedestrianness of the name. Like if you see Archwell, you aren't going to know that that's Harry and Meghan. Do you know what's funny about that is they've managed to both have it be pedestrian and also, like, really pretentious. At the same time. And it's like, that is a feat that I, I don't know how they accomplished, but they did it. Well, I look, I think it's really hard to name a entity. I'm just going to keep calling it an entity because we don't know what it is. That you hope to make a lasting foundation, a lasting impact. But here's the thing. When you think of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and you think of the Clinton Foundation and you like those are named after the people that are running them. You know, it almost like pulls on the celebrity. So I'm a little surprised that they didn't use Sussex. Why not? Like you just dropped the royal, but then you have Sussex Foundation. So everybody still knows, hey, we're not allowed to call it this, but that's what it is. I wonder if they weren't allowed. I know that's I mean, that's functionally their surname at this point you know what I mean like I don't think like it's a county in England it's not like Sussex is the royal family I, I think they absolutely could have used it I think they liked Sussex royal and it may have been like a 
full pivot and idea of let's just get away from Sussex completely because Sussex Royal was on everybody's brains. Are people going to attach themselves to Sussex well? well I think that's exactly Sussex... the reason to use it is like if Sussex Royal is on everybody's brains, then go with the familiarity of yeah. just Sussex. I don't know. Nobody, who... most people like the Royal part isn't actually the part of the name that they're attached to. It's the Sussex recognition. Yeah. Now so they've eliminated that completely. I was a little surprised by all of that. Um, but, you know, I'm sure they have highly, highly paid people working on this stuff. So I hope it works out for them. I, I, I just, I just like go back to, I'm just really curious how this all shakes out. And like you said last time, this is all going to be revisited in a year. And if it's not as successful as they hope it could be, they do have that safety net of just jumping back in. And, and like my friend, so my friend Michelle that brought this up, she said, you know, they should just treat this like a rum springer. <laughs> you know, go off, enjoy the real world, and then you just jump back into your little cocoon when when it's all over. And I thought that was like maybe an they will. Point. Maybe yeah. that's how it ends up shaking out. Maybe they find that the freedom that they think this is going to give them is not that different than what they already had. You know, like I think they're big. You know, we talked about this a lot actually. Their their big complaint is the press, but this move doesn't protect them at all from the press. No, in fact, they're being criticized for, confer- you know, whether or not they had a choice in confirming this, that's up for the uh, for debate because the story was that it was a paper that an investigative reporter or a journalist did some digging and found all the trademarks and asked them for comment and they came out and confirmed it. But um, they didn't know, have to. They didn't have to and they're getting some criticism about the timing of it obviously even though it does seem as though they probably plan to launch this right about now anyway um so I I don't know it's it's interesting um you know I'm I'm curious to see what sort of shape this entity takes and what their focus is going to be because I think you know with the move to LA and all of that and you know, what What kind of charitable entity are you hoping to create and who are you hoping to help? And, um, you know, I think with with something like this, when you don't have the backing of the royal family behind you, you have to focus a little bit to actually make an impact. You can't just sort of cast your net as wide as possible. So I'm, I'm right. curious to see how this shakes out. But as you say there's always something to talk about with them. So they really are the gift that keeps on giving. I'm sure next week we'll have something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're going to, I mean, what are they going to do if they have another kid though? That poor kid's not going to have a nonprofit named after them. Maybe they will. I don't know. All right. So that's all the current gossip we should talk about, but I thought we could talk about a rather scandalous gossip story from the 1300s, if you're up for it. Taking it way back. Way back. This involves some characters that we've talked about recently, so I think everybody will enjoy this. And this is called the, and I may pronounce this correctly, incorrectly, but this is the Tour de Nestle Affair. Hmm. I don't, you've probably never heard of this, although. No. This is such a great story because it's a scandalous story on its own, but it has an impact on a lot of the things that we've talked about so this is going to tie into a few episodes and I just I read it and I was like we got to cover it so it's a 
rather scandalous affair involving a French princess that we know very well. So our story starts with Philip IV of France, who, by the way, we have not talked about him, and we really need to cover him at some okay. point. But like any king, he wants to make success- successful marriages to advance the political power of his own kingdom. So Philip IV is known for having a really tumultuous reign. He was, it was notable for several wars. He sort of expanded the political power of France. Um, I think he went on crusade. Um, but he's also known uh, notably for the dissolution of the Knights Templar. Oh, okay. And um, side note, there is a Netflix show called Nightfall. That's about the downfall of the Knights Templar that involves King Philip and his wife, oh. Joan. It's highly, highly fictionalized. Is it good? It was entertaining. I got, and apparently there's a second season. I have not watched the second season. Um, but this show was pretty bonkers. Like, Isabella is a character. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Uh-oh. this does involve Isabella of France, who we talked say, about in our episode on Edward II. <laughs> She's, and now this is Isabella the she-wolf. The she-wolf. And she is okay. definitely portrayed as very ruthless on this show. Her mother is Joan, who um, was in her own right the Queen of Navarre. And she's having an affair with one of the Knights Templar. And it's just a whole drama. And all of that is definitely fictionalized because um, I think at the time Isabella would have been like a child. And in the show she's like a teenager. So anyway... Very entertaining, not very historically accurate, but all of these characters do make an appearance there. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, definitely check that out. So let's go back to the historical Philip. So Philip is at the end of his reign, which, as we mentioned, is pretty tumultuous. So he needs to shore up the succession. And luckily, he has four children with his wife, Joan. So he's got a lot of opportunity to do this. So his youngest child, as we just mentioned, is Isabella. And she is sent to England to marry its young King Edward. So we know that story. If you want to know more about that, listen to our episode on Edward II in our Deposed Kings series. Um, she's, she's definitely no doormat. But, you know, this was like a pretty big coup for Philip. He wants to shore up his political power, so he sends Isabella off to England to make nice with France. She's his only daughter. He has three sons. His eldest son is Louis, and he marries Louis to Margaret, who is the eldest daughter of the Duke of Burgundy. Their marriage is very unhappy. The way it was described is that Louis prefers to play tennis all day rather than spend any time with his wife. So he's just not very interested in her, and they just don't have a very successful marriage. His next eldest son is Philip, who was married to a woman named Joan, who is the daughter of the Count of Burgundy. Their marriage was very happy, and they had several children in pretty quick succession. So by all accounts, love match, it's great, no problems there. Then his youngest son, Charles, is married to Blanche, who is another daughter of the Duke of Burgundy. So Blanche and Margaret are sisters. The marriage of Charles and Blanche was described as unexceptional, which I take to mean as they didn't particularly care that much for each other, but they didn't hate each other anyway. 
either. It just went to plan, yeah. basically. So they're kind of like in the middle of the spectrum. So these three sons, and they're all married within like a few years of each other. So this happens like boom, boom, boom. Philip's setting up all these marriages. Um, <clears throat> and it's like a pretty big deal. By 1313, everyone was married off and getting on with life. And Isabella and Edward decide to visit her father in France. When they arrive, Isabella gifts all her new sisters-in-law with elaborate embroidered purses to welcome them to the family. Because you have to remember, even though by this point they've all been married a couple of years, Isabella hasn't seen them because she's been in right. England and it's not like you can just email and say, hey, new sister-in-law. So she makes these gifts to welcome them to the family. After their visit concludes, Isabella and Edward return to London, and they hold a feast, because the people of London want to celebrate their return. At the feast... Well, as we know, like, that's not a small thing to celebrate. Like, crossing the channel was really dangerous. Right, right. And they, it's not like they were gone for two weeks. They were gone right. for months. So at the feast, Isabella sees these two Norman knights in the corner wearing the embroidered purses. <gasps> So rude. Well, exactly. There's only one explanation for how these knights came to possess the embroidered purses that she gifted to her sisters-in-law. Right? I mean, wouldn't where would your brain go? That these sisters were like, who wants a purse? No, they're having affairs. Oh, okay. That's not where my brain went. <laughs> okay. Well, in the 1300s... I thought the offense was like, they just like... We're like, oh, who wants my trash? No, it's the 1300s. You make gifts to your lover. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I'm I'm ahead of the times. I don't know my 13th century. <laughs> That's okay. You've been in quarantine etiquette. for a few weeks. So, <laughs> so is, anyway, Isabella is immediately suspicious. She sees these gifts that she's given to her sisters-in-law. These random knights are now carrying them. That's highly... So, wait, can I just, like, interject? Like, if that's where everyone's assumptions would go, why would they do that? Because they aren't that bright. Okay. They just, I mean, I think they just, like, weren't thinking. I don't know. Who knows? They were also Norman knights, so they may not have thought that they'd travel back to England with the retinue because they were Frenchmen. But they somehow ended up in London with Isabella and Edward. Okay. So they may not have known. So, in her next visit to France in 1314, Isabella informs her father that she, she suspects that her sisters-in-law are having affairs. Now, notice, she doesn't know which ones, because there's two knights with the purses, and there's three sisters-in-law. They all got purses. So, Philip says, okay, I'm going to take care of this, and he has the knights followed. And it soon becomes apparent that Blanche and Margaret, these are the two daughters of the Duke of Burgundy, have been spending time with and probably sleeping with the two knights in the Tour de Nestle. So that's where this affair takes its name, is the Tour was an old tower in Paris that Philip had purchased. So, so they, let's just be clear, we are not talking about Tour de Nestle as like a tour of the Nestle factory. No, it is a tower. Okay. That is, is a, where my brain went yeah, on that. Too. It is a tower that Philip owns, so the girls have access to it. And this is where all of the salacious activity has occurred. So the way it was described in 
it was like they were eating together, drinking together, and conducting affairs. So okay. basically, like, they're getting it on in the tower. Joan is the third sister-in-law. And she remember, she's the one that's supposed to be in the happy marriage. She's right. said to have been present or had knowledge of the affairs. And then later on, they start to suggest that perhaps she also engaged in adultery. But that's probably not true. It's Okay, so nobody really knows for sure, obviously. But it's probably true that Blanche and Margaret were guilty. So you have to remember, Blanche is in an unexceptional marriage, which means she's probably bored. And Margaret is in a very unhappy marriage. So it kind of makes sense that they might seek companionship elsewhere. Some have suggested that perhaps Isabella was motivated politically to make these accusations and get them out of the way. The thought being that if she can get rid of the wives of her brothers, then her own son, Edward, can take the throne of France. Hmm. But that doesn't really make any sense because it's not like her brothers are dead. So they could just remarry, have male heirs. It's not really a good, good enough motive. So it's, it's, right. it's probably true that this is what occurred. In any case, Philip, the King Philip, feels like he has enough evidence that he publicly accuses them all of adultery and has everybody arrested. So the two knights are interrogated, tortured. I believe they do eventually confess. And then they're eventually executed for treason because they've... Um, you know, touched the bodies of the royal women, which is treason. And they were probably, no one really knows how they were killed, but it was probably in one of the horrific manners in, that we have discussed previously, which could mm. include drawn and quartered, um, you know, tortured and then castrated, then executed. So probably something unpleasant. Blanche and Margaret are put on trial and found guilty of adultery. They had their heads shaved and were sentenced to life in prison. These are the daughters-in-law of the King of France. Joan was found innocent, but this is, some people think it could be the influence of Philip, her husband, who was saying, no, no, no. Like, remember, they're in this happy marriage. He really loves her. And he's like, she's innocent. You can't find her guilty, so she's found innocent. Because this is the time period where a woman could sneeze incorrectly and be accused of being a witch. So right. it, is, it is pretty phenomenal that she was able to get off on these charges. But, okay, so that's basically the story. So it's pretty scandalous for the time. Because you have women who are in the royal family engaging in extramarital affairs with men who are considered way beneath them they were caught they were arrested they were punished but the scandal is really the most interesting because of the impact that it had on the french crown so so there's some blowback there is a lot of blowback so philip the king is said to be so shocked that it led to his death later on in 1314 Okay. Yeah. So, so Maybe. scandalous that it kills the king. Who, by the way, was, we'll talk about him, but was not a man who was easily moved. So, clearly very shocking. 
or something else killed him and they were just like it's because of the affair. No, it was it was yeah, I mean it was the 1300s. So anyway, what makes this scandal interesting is that all three of his sons eventually become king. And so the scandal actually plays a part in how that happens, the legacy, the impact, all of that. So hmm. Louis is the eldest son, and he was the one who was married to Margaret, and he succeeds his father to the throne. But he has a problem because he's just succeeded to the throne, and he has a wife who's just been sentenced to life in prison for adultery. That's a huge issue. So he needs to get rid of his wife. Unfortunately for Louis, also in 1314, the Pope, Clement V, dies. And his successor isn't elected until 1316. So Louis can't have his marriage annulled because there's no one to annul it. Mm. Sorry, Louis. And I'm not, it wasn't clear to me how, why he was asking for an annulment, not a divorce. I thought perhaps maybe it was because the marriage was never consummated because he was so busy playing tennis. But mm. they did have children, so I, I, I'm not I'm not completely um, well versed in the grounds for an annulment. I just assumed if you had consummated your marriage and had children, an annulment wasn't really an option. Unless you're royal, I guess. Maybe they were closely related. I don't know. You know, that's always the. It's like irreconcilable distances. Oh, I'm too closely related. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he can't get his divorce, basically. So um, Margaret dies, fortunately for Louis, under suspicious circumstances in prison. I was going to say, fortunately well, or like She dies in prison, purposely. very suspicious circumstances. She was probably murdered. That would be my guess. Most convenient because five days after she dies, Louis remarries. Mm. So I see he was mourning her. Yes, he was devastated. He remarries Clementia of Hungary, but unfortunately for Louis, he dies the following year, which is 1316, after falling ill, Allie, I kid you not, from a challenging game of tennis. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh at someone's death, but how? Tennis, tennis was his real love, apparently. Kept him from his wife and killed him. Um, that little detail was hysterical. Okay. So next up, we have the middle son, Philip, who is the one in the happy marriage with Joan, if you recall. Right. There was a baby in between. So Louis had a baby. So when Louis died, his wife was pregnant, and she gave birth to a son who was would have been king had he not died soon after birth as babies okay. tended to do back then. So we really, we just go straight to Philip. Interestingly, though, Louis had other children. Remember, he had children with Margaret and his eldest, but they only had daughters. His eldest daughter, another Joan, was denied the throne partly due to the Salic law that we've talked a lot about in um, our episodes on the French, where the female line was not able to inherit the throne. So the argument is that not only can the women not inherit the throne, but they can't pass it down to their male children because how can you pass along a claim that you yourself that you never possessed? Yes. But that was a little murky 
in the 1300s. They never had, um, they didn't want to pass the crown to women, but it wasn't necessarily set in stone. But this situation is the interpretation of the Salic law that set that in stone because Joan's mother had had an affair. So there was doubt on her paternity because the people that were against a woman taking the throne said, well, we're not even sure that she is Louis' daughter. So not only should we not give it to her because she's a woman, but we can't even be sure that she's the rightful heir anyway. So that, but they might not have brought up that reason if she were a man. Right. So it just bolstered their denial of her the throne, but then it sets a precedent for later on that women cannot inherit. Don't you find that interesting? I do. Like this one, you know, seemingly isolated incident, probably completely unrelated to the fact of her truly like truly unrelated to her being a woman like excludes all future women from the throne yep so instead philip takes the throne and his wife joan even though considered innocent had been placed under house arrest but philip gets her released and by all accounts he stands by her the entire time so the cynical interpretation of this is that he did it because if he divorced her he would lose burgundy Mm. or the more you know romantic interpretation is that he just loved her and he believed she was innocent in any case philip reigned for several years until he died suddenly in 1322 even though he and joan had a happy marriage and they had several children they had only daughters so who now can't rule. By the, yep, exactly. So the precedent that was set in 1316 where women can't inherit, his brother inherits instead. So that's Charles. Charles took the throne in 1322. Remember, his wife was Blanche. And she's been imprisoned the entire time all this is going on. And now he takes the throne and she's technically Queen of France. And he refuses to release her from prison. So instead, he has their marriage annulled and sends her to a nunnery. Because now there's a pope to do that. Exactly. Problem solved. But then, did they have any children? Because I would assume they'd have to remove those children from the inheritance. Well, he next marries Marie of Luxembourg and then dies. And he has no male heirs. So I actually didn't look up whether or not he and Blanche had any children, but at this point it doesn't matter because he doesn't have any male heirs. So who's the throne going to? Well, interesting question. So this leaves a vacancy on the throne of France. You have in one corner, you have Philip of Valois, who claims the throne as he is the closest claimant through the male lineage. So he's not that close to the throne, but if you go just through the males... He's the next in line. He also has the support of the French nobles. But remember, Isabella of France marries Ah. Edward II, and they have a son, Edward. Edward III claimed the throne of France through his mother, Isabella. But the French, remember... you can't do that. Exactly. The French were against it due to the Salic law. So, what happens is, this scandal occurs, cements the fact 
that a woman cannot inherit the French throne, had one of those marriages been successful and not had this scandalous affair, they may have produced a male heir, and France and England might have avoided the Hundred Years' War. What? The end. If only those women weren't dumb enough to give their lovers their purses. No, that's why it's such an interesting story. I mean, the story itself is pretty um, salacious, but, like, the impact of that directly led to the Hundred Years' War. Crazy. Hello. I thought I read that and I was like, that is fantastic. And actually, what was other what was also interesting about it was I was reading was that this is the era of courtly love, remember, where like mm. flirting was like an art form. So like they might not have even really been having affairs. Well, they probably were. But what's interesting about it is that in France, the idea of like courtly love is like you tell these stories, you tell these like romantic tales. And all of the stories that used to involve, like, adultery and things like that, they really, like, dropped off in popularity because it hit a little too close to home. People were like, oh, you know, we don't want to hear about queens falling in love with knights anymore. (laughs) Interesting. Because that actually happened, and and now we're at war for 100 years, and maybe we just won't talk about that anymore. I think that's a very interesting story. I honestly didn't see that twist coming. (laughs) I know. Plot twist, 100 years war. Yeah, so it's, like, interesting because you think about, like, you know, we've talked about Isabella, and we knew that Edward III had tried to claim the throne of France, but when you look at that context... I'm not sure we really put it in the context of the Hundred Years' War, though. I mean, we, I think we talked about it when we talked about um, the, the children of Edward III, briefly. Maybe. We've never... But, man, what a, like, moral to that story, right, is, like really think hard about infidelity you might spark a like a century-long war well that's what's so crazy about it is that when when you know philip the fourth had i mean his succession was secure he had three sons they were all married surely one of them would produce a male heir unfortunately you know this affair happens and um this one successful marriage that survives it only has daughters and the others don't last long enough to have any male heirs. And it's just like if you follow that trail, you end up with a succession crisis. Hmm. And you've got your she-wolf of a daughter in England trying to put her son on the throne. It's crazy. So It's a great story. Yeah. We will have to cover Philip IV. But I, I just found that story and I thought, you know, this is, this is like the kind of stuff that we want to cover right now is the stuff that we might not normally include in It's like the episode. little nooks and crannies yeah. of our tales. Yeah, little, little gossip items from the 13th century. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine that blind item? What she-wolf sparked a war? <laughs> it doesn't sound like it was very blind. I mean, those no, embroidered no. purses were right there yeah. in plain view. <laughs> I'm also picturing, like, the most bedazzled, sparkly purses when they probably weren't that elaborate because these male knights were carrying them around. But, I don't know, fashion was different back then. So, hmm. I don't know. But, yeah, that's that's our tale for the evening. So, um, we're open to suggestions. But that's, yes. you know, no, no century is off limits. Cool. Well, we'll be back with more gossip. I'm sure we will next time. Can't wait to catch you up all you all up on that. We haven't picked our next story, so if anybody has any suggestions, please let us know. 
And I hope everyone is staying safe, healthy, sane. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Wear your masks. Stay home. And uh, we'll get through it. Yep. All right. Till next time. Till then. Right. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.